0: Turn to Luke 24. This morning I'm going to read you Luke's account of the resurrection, and then we are going to head to a few other passages to try to better understand some of the effects of the resurrection for us and beyond. So at this point in our passage in Luke, uh, Jesus has died and while from our vantage point we know what a glorious blessing the death of Christ is, uh, was and is, as we read we should really try to imagine those closest to him at the time of his death. I mean these were the darkest days of their lives. They had left all that they had ever known to follow Jesus. They had uh, left their livelihood. They had put all their eggs in one basket. It was his. And then he was brutally murdered. These were dark and confusing days. You know, what are they supposed to make of the hope that they thought they had in him, the Messiah, the, the king of God's kingdom? And, and um, I think about Peter. You know, you think you've felt guilt and shame over your sin. I mean, imagine what Peter was feeling. The last thing that he did before Jesus died was deny him three times. And uh, just those couple days for him and what that must have been like. So follow as I read Luke 24, 1-12. This is the Word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as, they were, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise." he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. Now, um, it's good practice to take that and then pull, you know, a few points from it and and make my case there. And we could certainly do that. I mean, even the fact that Jesus foretold this and uh, evidence of his divinity and, um, you know, I think... One of the things that was so countercultural in the early Christian movement is the prominence of women and their role. And we see that again here. I mean, the women go in to tell the apostles what they had seen, which is just a cool thing. Uh, of course, Peter, and we'll make mention of that. But um, what I really want to do is, having seen again that this is true, I want to go to a few other passages in order to better understand the significance of what we've just read. Um, earlier this week, Tiffany reminded me of a conversation that we had a few years ago with a friend of ours and you know he's a long time christian he believes that Jesus did in fact rise um, but he kind of was struggling to understand why that mattered and uh, maybe you can relate maybe you yeah I know I believe that i don't have a problem with that but i you know what's what's a big deal and uh So today I want to show you just a few of the glorious effects of the resurrection. A few reasons why it matters. Now, um, I know that many of you ladies are studying the book of Acts in the ladies' Bible study. And you've probably seen that for those first Christians, um, nothing fueled their hope in Christ and their energy for His mission more than the resurrection. This was the game changer for them. So maybe we've underestimated its importance. Maybe it's not at the forefront of our thinking and our teaching enough, uh, but hopefully today can help to move in uh, the other direction. First, turn to Romans 4, verse 25 <clears throat> Luke John Acts Romans. Romans 4:25. I'll start reading just before verse 25. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the first glorious effect of the resurrection that I want us to think about is that Jesus was raised for our justification. Now justification is a word that we use kind of a lot around here. Uh, If you've ever been to a Wednesday night service, you've probably heard Dr. Young use it. Over and again, justification by faith alone. That was the principal doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. That's what all the fuss was about. That's why we broke off from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Major, there were other differences, but that was kind of the key issue major differences over this issue of justification. Now, maybe if you're honest, you've heard that word, justification, and you know it's important. Because justification by faith, you know? Uh, But you're still not exactly sure what it means, and if I were to call on you and and ask you to tell everyone, you'd be like, I I like justification. Um, And if so, that's okay. And uh, maybe, maybe today will help. A simple way to define justification is God's act of making his people right with him. Or an even better definition, uh, not from me, from Ligonier Ministries, justification is God's legal declaration that we are righteous before Him. So we are justified or made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, what that means is when we first put our faith in Christ, God declares us not guilty but righteous and invites us into unbreakable forever fellowship as a member of His family. Which is absolutely amazing to think about because God is holy and just and He knows no sin uh, and His holiness and His justice demand that He punish sin with His wrath. We see that from the very early days of the Bible. Um, you know, Adam and Eve, one sin, separation from God, uh Judgment, curse, I mean, the flood, sin, destruction. Not one sin can slide. Sin must be dealt with. And we are sinners through and through. So how is it that a holy God can have fellowship with us? God made a way to uphold His justice in judgment on sin while at the same time administering His grace and mercy and salvation. The way is Jesus Christ. So, um, I think when we normally think about justification, we normally think about the cross. You know, uh, the cross is what makes us right with God. But according to our passage, Romans 4.25, without the resurrection, there is no being made right with God. And certainly without the cross, we're not made right with God either. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. So we are not made right with God without his death and resurrection. So here's how I think about it. When we first trust in Christ for salvation, it's as if we are a defendant in the courtroom of heaven. God the Father is the judge, Jesus having died and risen has gone back to heaven. He's at the Father's right hand and he is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. And we are on trial for our sin, uh And, uh, or we're on trial, and our sins are the witnesses against us. And here they come just streaming into the room, you know, one after another taking the stand. All of the sins that you've ever committed in your entire life, thought, word, and deed, there are sins there you didn't even know you committed. And it's your turn to speak, but you can't be heard because your sins are crying out against you. And Satan is the prosecutor. And being the, the accuser that he is, he is pleading his case to God the Father, demanding that he consider the evidence. Look at all of these sins. You are holy. You cannot tolerate this. He is guilty. She is guilty. So the Father looks to the Son that He would make His defense. He says nothing but simply holds up His hands and shows Him His scars. Your sins are screaming. You're overcome with guilt and shame. You're, you're bowed down, can't even look God in the face when the gavel comes down with the thunder and there is silence. Satan and your sins shut up, expecting with glee that you will be condemned. But the verdict comes, not guilty, but righteous. Justified in Jesus. Welcome into my family. Welcome into the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is there. He's already died and he's risen. He paid for your sins on the cross. He he's risen conquering the curse of sin and death, proving that your sin debt was paid in full. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the full wage with his death, and then he killed death. He reversed the curse. There is no more punishment for you. Jesus was punished in your place. God's wrath, the full cup of God's wrath went to Him instead of you. Jesus has, big word, propitiated God's wrath from you, meaning removed it forever away from you. And not only that, not only was your sin put on Christ, but Christ's righteousness has been credited to you, big word for that, double imputation or words. Uh, our sins to Jesus, his righteousness to us. So no one can come into God's presence unless we are sinless and blameless and spotless and righteous. No one, one sin, you're out. But that is exactly what God has done for us, that is who he has made us to be. In Christ, He punished our sins in Him and He has credited us with Jesus' righteousness so that now God views us as though there were no sin at all. Fully righteous. Justified by faith in Christ. So do you believe in Christ? Then God has made a legal declaration about you in the courtroom of heaven. The highest court in the universe. You are not guilty but righteous in his sight. One way that's helpful for me to think about this is if you've got two books, uh, let's say the book of Chris's life and the book of Jesus's life, and you look at Chris's life and, you know, there's some chapters in there that are, oh, that was nice, he was cute, and then you get, you know, a little older and you're like, ooh, you know, and there's some really bad chapters in there and, you know, use your life as an example and go through the chapters of your life and go to those places that only you and God know and there's some pretty ugly pages in there. Well, then you go to Jesus' life and every page is perfect, spotless, blameless, pure, no sin, fully righteous. And what God has done in the Gospel is He has essentially transferred the book covers. So now, you go to Jesus' life, you open it, and you see Chris's life. And you turn over here and the book cover is changed and you open Chris's life and you see perfect, spotless, blameless, pure, no sin, righteous. That is who you are in Christ. Perfect. Righteous. God does not view you according to your sin. He views you in His Son. So, uh, the message of being made right with God by... Faith alone in Christ alone has been treasured and will be treasured for, by the church throughout history. We'll rehearse it again and again for all eternity. And part of my purpose today in rehearsing it again is to get you to rest again in Him, uh, but also to see how essential the resurrection is to being made right with God. Without it, there is no gospel. Uh, without the resurrection, we're not right with God. He went to the, Jesus went to the cross as our substitute. He was raised as our advocate for our justification. Uh, one last thing to think about here, and then we'll move on. Um, so we see in our passage in Romans 4 that there's no gospel without the resurrection. And then we go back to Luke 24, and uh, we see that it is only those who really know their sin who are primed to receive the good news of the Gospel. You know, the response from the other apostles at first was one of unbelief. Um, But Peter, I mean, Peter, the one that is racked with guilt and shame from his sin for denying Jesus three times when he heard that Jesus had risen, he ran to the tomb with eager expectation. Could Could it be could it actually be there, there is... He, he goes and he sees and he marvels and he runs home with joy in his heart marveling at what had happened. Because having come to know his sin deeply, he was primed to receive the Gospel joyfully. We have to know our sin before we can know our Savior. Next, uh, the second glorious effect of the resurrection I want us to consider is that Jesus was raised to reign. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start uh, just before verse 20. uh, Ephesians 1. With uh, His great might, that's God the Father's great might, He is also Lord, He is ruler, He is king over all things, heaven and earth. God the Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the position of highest authority in the universe at at His right hand, far above all other rulers and authorities. That includes human rulers and authorities and angel and demon rulers and authorities. Jesus is the head over everything It says that all things are under His feet. And then, don't turn there, but listen to this from Hebrews 2. It says, In putting everything in subjection to Him, in putting everything under His feet, He left nothing outside of His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him. Everything's in subjection. We don't yet see it. We see Him, and we trust that God is true, that everything is in subjection. Um we, just, we believe what God says about him. He is Savior and he is Lord. He is the ruler over all things, heaven and earth. So I often think about this in terms of our evangelism. Um, the evangelist, the gospel, sharing the good news. But one of the ways that we get to the gospel is by establishing the fact that Jesus is Lord. Just appealing to someone. Jesus is Lord. He is head over all. We owe him our allegiance. Every person is responsible to know him and love Him and serve Him. He's the King of the universe. And, and from there, uh, we can get into kind of the problem of our sin that has made in relationship with Him and the solution of His death and resurrection, the responsibility that we have to repent and believe, and so on and so forth. Um, but something that I've been thinking about is our tendency in speaking about uh, these things to say something like, well, you know, I believe that uh, Jesus... Did this and that. I believe that Jesus went um, to the cross. And I believe that... And it's not bad that you believe that. It's very good. But um, I think that in sharing Christ with others, we ought to take that I believe part out. Because we're really not appealing to what we believe. Um, as Francis Schaeffer once said, no matter what a man may believe, he cannot change the reality of what is. And what we're appealing to is What is. And so I think that's what we should say. This is the way that it is. Jesus is Lord. And every man everywhere, every woman everywhere has a responsibility to know Him and love Him and serve Him. Uh, you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's a soapbox. But I'm not a big fan of the uh, you know, apologetic approach. That, you know, well, if, if you'll grant me if this can be true, then maybe this too. And there's no if about it. It is true regardless of what any man believes. We aren't called to speak in hypotheticals. We're called to herald, to proclaim, to declare that Jesus is. Jesus died for our sins. On the third day, He rose. He is alive. He rules and reigns over all. He's the head over everything regardless of what anyone believes. All things are under His feet right now. He is the king of the universe and everyone will know that to be true in God's time. So another implication of the fact that Jesus is Lord, all things under His feet. Um, You know, politics is on our mind these days or it's on mine. It's never really been on my mind before. I haven't cared much. Uh, I think it just has captured my attention this year. And, you know, if it ends up Being Trump versus Hillary, which seems likely, I think uh, we would have good reason to fear certain things because I think both options are horrible. But um, we cannot forget that while the highest office in our land might be filled with a godless blasphemer, the highest office in the universe is occupied by Jesus Christ and will forever be occupied by Jesus Christ. All things including our little thrones here in the United States. All things are under His feet. So I think this actually presents a great opportunity in people's unrest to point people to Christ and say, you know, things might be unstable under the leadership of Trump or Hillary, but they are perfectly stable under the leadership of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't want to get too far off track. I think this should also impact the way that we vote or don't vote Um, you know, we're called to submit to the leaders that God puts in place and He has His good reasons uh, for putting them in place. But there's a difference between submission to uh, ungodly authorities and signing up to submit to ungodly authorities. Um, We can talk more about that another time. The third thing I want us to think about today is that Jesus was raised for the life of the world. Uh, You don't have to turn, but I'll just make mention of Colossians 1, familiar passage there. Verses 15 to 20 is a section that is uh, demonstrating the preeminence of Christ, that he is of highest rank and supreme function in the universe, like what we're seeing in in the other. uh, He is head over all. And so it talks about the fact that Jesus is the creator of all that has been created. He is the sustainer of all that is sustained. And uh, then there's a statement in the middle of verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Well, the beginning of what? He's the beginning of the new creation. You know, in Revelation he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Um, he's the first to come back from the dead to eternal life. And, you know, there are other people that have come back from the dead and then die again. Um, but like he raised some people and then they died again later. But he came back from the dead to eternal life. And uh, basically to say Jesus was the first fruits and there's a whole lot more where that came from. So why does that matter? What, well, I think about we look out at our culture and uh, in a time like ours when things are growing increasingly dark by the day. And we ask what hope is there? Well, there's the hope of the resurrection. This world can never be the same because Jesus came back from the dead in it. This world will never recover from the resurrection. Again, as he says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. The power of the resurrection cannot be stopped. The forces of darkness do not stand a chance. Their greatest ally, death, has been defeated. Which leads us to then have an optimistic view of the trajectory of history. We don't have to be optimistic about all the darkness that we see, but we know where things are going. For example, the Great Commission. Jesus rose from the dead. He appears to His disciples. He said, go and make more disciples of all nations. He said, I'm going to be with you in this until it's done, until the end of the age. Uh, He's with us in the power and the person of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit. The mission can't be stopped. The mission will be completed. The nations will be discipled. This world, this world, will be restored. In God's time, the forces of evil will be fully and finally eradicated. Uh, Another implication of the fact that Jesus died for the life of the world is our stewardship of our life uh, that God has entrusted to us. You know we're going to live forever. Um, I remember Francis Chan did a little thing, and he had like a really long white rope that he uh, wrapped around a huge sanctuary, up and down every aisle. I mean, it had to be who knows how many thousands of feet or whatever. And then there was like this little strip of red tape, and he said, "That's your life here, and that's eternity." And it, but it keeps going. You know, so um, we don't think about our lives here that. Much like that, but um, so we're going to live forever. This portion of our life is very short compared to forever, even if you just take the next 40 or 50 years, if we're lucky, and compare it to 10,000 years. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, um, well, 40 or 50 compared to 10,000 is not very much, and we're going to be there a lot longer than 10,000. I know it's hard to grasp, but um, you know, we need to think about that. And so this portion of our lives is very short and the purpose of this portion is very specific. Our lives are not meant to be hoarded. They're not meant to be preserved. They're not meant to be, uh, we're not meant to seek for our own gain in them. Our lives are meant to be completely spent for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Living sacrifices is the way that Romans 12 describes that. We are stewards of the gift that has been entrusted to us. We are called to invest it. We're called to spread it around. We're called to maximize it for the glory of God and for the life of the world. Next, um, we can think about the implication of the resurrection for the life of the world. And we can think about it personally, uh, the effects of of the and the implications of the resurrection for the certainty of our own eternal life. So, in 1 Corinthians, I mentioned that earlier, Paul talks about the resurrection uh, in 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about it uh, at great length. That's where he says, if Jesus was not raised, then uh, we're still in our sins, our faith is ineffectual. And it, somewhere in there he says, if he wasn't raised, well, we're just of all people. If our hope is only in this life, we're of all people, you know, to be pitied. So there's a group of people in the church in Corinth at that time saying that there's no resurrection from the dead, and uh, in that section, Paul argues from Jesus' resurrection to our resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised, then we have no hope uh, of being raised. but he has been raised, and so will we. Turn to Romans eight real quick. I love this uh, verse in Romans. Romans 8.30 Romans 8.30 And those whom He predestined that's God He also called those whom He called He also justified we were talking about that and those whom He justified He also glorified now, we were talking about justification earlier. Uh, that is something that we said, and the Bible says, more importantly, that God has already declared to be true about us. We are not guilty, but righteous in God's sight. We are already justified. Thus, it is communicated in our text in the past tense. But notice the tense of our glorification those that He justified, He also glorified. Past tense. But our glorification is still off in the future. It's that day, one day, someday, whenever we die or when Jesus returns that uh, we will be with Him in glory. Yet it is communicated in the past tense, which means that it is just as secure as our justification. Jesus rose from death, and as surely as we know that is true, we know it's true that we are too we know that we will be with Him in glory. Those who believe now and are justified now are certain to be in glory. Final point. Jesus was raised to be our forerunner in the faith. Um, I saw a tweet from David Platt this week that said something like, uh, lessons from the cross... All wanting a safe life from the dangers uh, in this world, stay away from Jesus. You know, just examining the cross, you're going to be a follower of His. If you're after a safe life, if you're after getting away from the dangers of this world, don't follow Him, because apparently that's not the way He's heading. Now, the Christian life is hard for anyone, even without acute persecution. We are guaranteed to suffer in this life. And if the current cultural climate continues to heat up, it is going to get harder for us in the not-too-long future to live as Christians here in the United States. So one of the things we have to keep remembering is that the Christian life is lived in these patterns or cycles of fall and rise, death and resurrection. And not just at the end when we fall and then rise to be with Him in glory, but all the way through the Christian life, we see these cycles of fall and rise. We talked about this not not too long ago. This is the way God grows us personally, you know, humbles us, to exalt us. Um, This is the way God advances His kingdom in the world, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, as the kingdom comes into someone's life, as they become a part of the kingdom, it, it comes through brokenness, conviction. Being humbled, uh, that's humiliating. You're, you're broke down, and God raises you up in His time. We think about the disciples, the devastation and hopelessness that they experienced at the death of Christ. And then, days after that uh, He rose from death, there they are with faith filled enthusiasm with Him on the Mount as He's given the Great Commission. And who, they, they have to feel like they can take over the world, fall and rise. Um, it's like the cycles of giving birth. Not that I would know anything about that from experience, but I have observed it three times, and it's pretty fresh in my mind. At the moment, um, there are those moments when you cannot possibly imagine that it will—you can go any further. You know, there's just uh, no way that we're getting past this point. And then you do. There's no way we're getting to the hospital. And then we do. There's no way I'll get through transition labor. And then you do. There's no way I will push this baby out of me. And then you do. You know. I understand uh, exceptions to every rule, but you know what I mean for the sake of the illustration. Every illustration breaks down fall and rise. So there are those of you uh, with acute trials in your life right now, there are those with a particular grief at this point in your life because you're um, remembering the most devastating time or times uh, in your life this time of year, cling to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You have been made right with God. You have a sure, certain hope that all things will be put right in the end. He is your forerunner in the faith. And he will see you through to the end. He has made the way for us, the ultimate fall and rise. So, as the culture around us grows darker, remember that the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not, it cannot, it will not overcome it. We have a rock solid hope in Christ. It is the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we long to know these things more fully and to know them not only in our heads, but to know them experientially, um, to be gripped by these glorious truths. And we, we know, Lord, that we will be growing in our understanding for all eternity. But I pray now that You would grant us a spirit of wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you, that we might uh, live lives that glorify you, fully pleasing to you, that we might bear, bear fruit in every good work that you have um, prepared for us. Lord, I believe with all of my heart that the way that we're going to do that is to be overcome and overwhelmed by your love, your grace, your mercy that you have poured out on us in Christ. Might the good news of our justification, uh, the fact that we have been made right with You, that we are forever in unbreakable fellowship with You, that we are certain to be glorified with You. Lord Jesus, that You paid it all, and that includes death, that You you killed death, that we have hope, and that we will live with You world without end, without pain and sadness and suffering, and Lord, in the grand scheme of things, this life is very short. We trust you that we will rise when we fall in death, and Lord, help us to trust you in the meantime as we go through these patterns and cycles of fall and rise in our lives here. We pray that You would strengthen us uh, by Your grace for the work ahead, and we pray that You would prepare our hearts now to worship You with great joy uh, as we join together with our church family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.